Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. The scripture for the sermon is found in Psalm, the third Psalm. It's page 448 in the Blue Pew Bible. <clears throat> This psalm was written uh, during a time when King David's son, Absalom, had rebelled against him and was pursuing him. David is fleeing for his life, and you'll find that he has such confidence in his God, our God, that he's able to lie down and sleep and rest when his life is in danger. Psalm 3, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The word of our God, our refuge. Uh, I wanted to tell you that at the uh, end of the service, after the announcements, uh, the elders and I have to immediately walk out, do not collect 200, do not pass gold, um, to go to Weatherford to make a presentation to the Weatherford Church that we're involved in overseeing as a session. So I apologize, having been away for so long, that I can't uh, have happy reunion with you at that time. We just have to hold off on that, and uh, that just will explain how we just kind of suddenly vanish. You'll open your eyes in prayer, and we'll be gone. (laughs) Anyway, so. This psalm begins, as was pointed out, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his, his son, The roots of David's flight go back to the afternoon when he was walking on the roof and he saw a gorgeous woman bathing. He inquired, who is this woman? He finds out that it's Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of the warriors at the battle for David's kingdom. At the time this took place, one of his faithful soldiers endangering his life for David. And yet, 
David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house, and he slept with her. A few weeks later, he finds out, as she sends him word, that she's pregnant. And so, the first thing he tries to do is to cover it up. And the best way is to get Uriah back from the battle. So he sends to Joab, the general, the commander, and says, send Uriah back. And so he has Uriah come and he visits with him. How is Joab? How are the people doing? How's the battle going? He's so overly interested in the battle, you know. And then he sends him home, hoping that he'll have relations with his wife. And this whole thing can just play like he had himself a baby. But Uriah... Throws a monkey wrench because of his own integrity and his own nobility. And he, he stays on David's own doorstep with David's servants. He doesn't even go to his house. And David finds this out the next day. And, oh, he's so concerned about Uriah's rest and well-being. Uriah, you journeyed so far. Why didn't you go home? And he encourages him along those lines. You know, he's so concerned about his rest. Well... That night he had him over again. He asked to stay again and he got him drunk, hoping now maybe he'll go home. And still he slept on a couch with David's servants and didn't go home. What to do, what to do. So he sends a message to Joab. Uriah himself is carrying the message. And the message says to Joab, I want you to put Uriah in the front of the hardest part of the battle. And I want you all to back away from him so he'll be struck down and die. So, Joab does this. He sends the message back to David. He says, now listen, when you tell him what happened, And you tell him how we got close to the wall and we fell under the archers. David's going to get angry because he'll wonder, well, why did you do that? Why did you get close to the wall and expose the people? Then tell him and Uriah the Hittite died also. He'll be okay as long as he knows that Uriah is dead. Well, that's Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. In the next chapter, the prophet Nathan comes and exposes his sin. And he pronounces this judgment. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house because you have done this thing. So this is how it unfolded. First, one of his sons, Amnon raped one of his daughters. They were children of two different wives. Amnon rapes Tamar. Now, Tamar's brother is Absalom, mentioned here in Psalm 3.3. Her full brother. Amnon was her half-brother. So, Absalom, in retaliation for the rape, has Amnon killed. And after he kills him, he flees Jerusalem for three Then David admits him into Jerusalem, but not into his presence. Two years after that, five years total, he's admitted back into David's presence and favor. 
And then, after being restored, his son Absalom betrays David. He's tall, he's handsome, he's well-liked by the people. He turns their hearts away from David and he forms a rebellion against David. And David and all his household had to flee Jerusalem for their lives. And these tragic words are in 2 Samuel chapter 15. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. There goes the king of Israel. And no doubt the weeping, partly, yes, the loss of everything, but the stark realization for David as he expressed his own sin in Psalm 51, I brought this on my head. What have I done? What have I done? That's the context. It's in connection with David's flight that this psalm is written. Our focus is going to be on verse 3. And this is a remarkable thing, knowing that the reason things had fallen apart was his own sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And as he expressed it in Psalm 1, it truly and finally was really against God himself. He said, I, it was you that I sinned against. He, he broke God's law. He broke God's law of love and defied God himself. You know, when you're in the midst of the consequences of your sin, when everything bad that is happening to you is the result of your own actions, it is so easy to feel at that point, especially, God has abandoned me. And for good reason. I can't blame him. The circumstances seem to speak for themselves. Look what's happening to me. This is a sign of God's judgment. He's turning his back upon me. And for David, of course, his were various serious sins, adultery and murder. And with your enemies taunting you, as it says in verse two, there is no salvation for him in God. Throwing it in your face that God must have abandoned you. Look, look at what happens has happened to you. It would be easy to think. I've made him completely, utterly sick. He's done with me. He can't stand dealing with me anymore. And of course, at that point, we ask the question, is that ever happened to you? And what do you do at that point? Do you feel at that point, well, I'm going to have to fix a lot of things and get a lot of things straight in my life before God could ever even look at me again? i got to turn this all around before God can even get close to me. It's going to be a long time. How can I earn it back? How could I get back in his favor? But even now, when David has brought all of these things crashing down, he cries out in faith. But you, O Lord, as opposed to my enemies, you... It's emphatic. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that glorious to see this kind of trust? And we might even feel 
well, how could you feel that he would be that anymore to you? We, we might even feel a little self-righteous in this. God is still going to be a shield and he's going to be the glory, the lifter of the head of this murderer. The word shield is very common in the Psalms. It's wonderful in the very first chapters of Genesis when God is engaging in his covenant with Abraham, the covenant that runs all the way through to Revelation. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Like a, a beginning statement that is going to apply to God's people forever. This, this defines what I am to my people and will be forever to my people. And so in the Psalms, you read that the Lord is my strength and my shield or my son and my shield or my help and my shield or my hiding place and my shield. And I love this. He is a shield for whom? Psalm 1830. He is a shield. What do you have to do? He says he's a shield for all who take refuge in him. Anybody, everybody, no matter their situation, no matter their condition, no matter their depravity or corruption or what they've done. He is a shield immediately for anybody that will take him as their refuge. Under any circumstances, in any situation. That is good news. And in the New Testament context, it is underscored by the very blood of Christ who suffered for the sake of his people that he might protect them. First and foremost, from the wrath of God. Here is Jesus Christ becoming very obviously and plainly a shield for his people, bearing the very wrath and punishment of God, swallowing it up whole so that Paul can say there is not one bit of condemnation left over for God's people. So where a shield, you might say, is great and glorious as it was in the Old Testament, was kind of with a small S, it's with a big S and a big H and a big I and a big E and a LD. He is your shield. He has become flesh in order to be your shield, your protector. You know, a lot of times uh, famous people, uh, even military people that are guarded by bodyguards, the bodyguards and they are killed. (laughs) They're all killed together because they weren't strong enough. Isn't it comforting to know that it's the God of the earth? The Lord and maker of creation that is your shield. There is nothing, nothing that can come against him. There is nothing that will overcome him. He will have his way of being your shield. He will. And he's a fierce warrior for his people. Now, it might be important for us to understand kind of the nature of the shield in our context He does not shield us from all the miseries and the curse of this world. And we have enough in our own congregation to clearly show evidence of that. There's not one aspect of human suffering that the people of God are not familiar with. So you might ask, well, how does this square with his protection? 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 Give me a break. How are we protected? In fact... Many people, because they become Christians in certain countries, 
they seem all the less protected because they go to jail or they're persecuted. They die. How is he a shield? Where's the safety in that? Well, two things I would say to that. First of all, he is most basically and critically our shield spiritually. Okay? He is our shield spiritually so that the loss of other protections, the loss of our own safety, even disease or things turning upside down in our lives will be ultimately for the protection and safety of our spiritual well-being. And he will not budge on that. That's how we need to understand Romans 8, 28. He is always, in all things, he works together for good. But as Jeremy pointed out yesterday at men's prayer breakfast, and I thought it was so cool that he mentioned this there, just a chance thing, uh, that, that uh, I was going to talk about it this morning, but that uh, all things work together so that you will more and more conform to Jesus Christ and finally be conformed to Christ. And he will protect you and shield you and use all things for that end in view. Even later in Romans 8, after it says all things will work together, he talks about the immense suffering of God's people. doesn't sound very good. It's not the good he's talking about. So that's the first thing. That's the deal God offers you. I will make you like my son. And true believers say, Lord For the privilege of knowing you, for the relief and satisfaction of having my sins taken away and being in fellowship with you and being associated with you forever, do with me what you will. Be my shield spiritually. Be faithful to me every day and whatever you do in my life, make me more like Christ. Make me more a vessel of love and goodness and light in this world. Oh, Lord, I do. But he is a shield in this final sense as well. In the final resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, the Lord will finally shield us from all suffering and pain and misery and sadness of any kind, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. He does it completely. It's constant. It's forever. He shields us in that last day. Permanently from anything that could ever interfere with our full moment by moment happiness and well-being. You see, he makes good on that promise. And he is just as concerned about your physical well-being and protection. But that part has a final fulfillment. And in the meantime, there's this promise to your spiritual well-being and shielding you. And in many cases, of course, you will be and are protected against things that could have happened to you. There's no doubt about it. Constant protection of his people in innumerable ways. But don't ever think because there's some kind of physical thing, as is said so many times in our modern evangelical world on TV, that this indicates somehow 
that God is against you, that you don't have the wealth and health that God intended, and there must be some problem with your faith. How could people think that? How could they say that when God so clearly says that things will work together for your likeness to Christ, even in the midst of your suffering and loss? But he says he's our glory. No matter how shamed I am by others, no matter how shamefully I have acted or how ashamed I feel, he is my glory and my honor. I am a sinner. I've thought and said and done shameful, disgraceful, appalling things. I deserve only shame and judgment. Yet, in Christ, and this again is where the, he is our glory burst into a full bloom in the New Testament. We are now in Christ, associated with Christ, who is all perfection. Christ is worthy of all honor and glory. And when I trust in him, amazingly, I'm joined with him. All that he is and all that he's become It becomes mine because he is truly worthy of all honor and glory. He's exalted to the right hand of God above. And we actually read in Ephesians 2, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. That that just sounds blasphemous. It sounds like a sacrilege. That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, having earned it through his perfect life and his sacrifice. And he now has all honor and glory at the right hand of the Father. And then in Paul's next breath, he says, and you know where you are? You're seated with him. Sinner? Corrupt? Vile? Yes, you are seated with him because he is your glory. He is your honor. You may have none. You may have none from any person on the earth. But you have all honor in him. We lost all hope of glory, but Christ has won glory for us. It even says that we will reign with him. It says in the last day we will be revealed with him in glory. There's an unveiling of us, like we're glorious Michelangelo statues that are unveiled in that last day, made perfect in Christ. And so, no matter what you've done, what you've been, no matter for how long, no matter how dark and corrupt, when you come to Christ, not only is He the means of forgiveness for you, He becomes your glory. And even if abused and mocked and rejected by the world, yet Christ is our glory, even though we're despised and disdained and destroyed and regarded as refuse to be eliminated as millions of Christians were in the last century. Yet he was their glory. And that will be made complete and fully public at the resurrection John says, it has not yet appeared what we shall be. And he says, you are my shield, my glory, 
and the lifter of my head. It's really interesting reading where David was weeping and covering his head and now saying, you're the lifter of my head. A phrase used several times in the scriptures. And so when I am dejected and undone, disappointed, destroyed emotionally in every other way, he lifts my head and notice that is his name. You are the lifter. Okay, that's what he reveals himself to you as I and personally to you, each of you. He says, I'm the lifter of your head. I commit myself to lift your head. All the time, constantly, that's who I am. That's what I do. <laughs> I'm the lifter of your head. He commits himself to us. He he will not leave us sad. He says, finally, in that day, enter into the joy of your master. And brothers and sisters, the measure of his commitment is read in the Old Testament as it predicted the suffering of Christ in Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs and our sorrows, not just your sins. But your miseries, your grief, your sorrows, why would he bear those except ultimately that he's going to take them all away? And with his blood, he states, I'm this committed to lift your head, to impart joy to your life, to give you peace. Why does he say to his disciples in the upper room, peace I give you, my peace I give you. He's saying, I'm the lifter of your head. Why does he say, I say these things so that my joy would be in you and your joy would be fully saying, I'm the lifter of your head. And so when you're crushed, I urge you, call to the one who is the lifter. It is a personal title. He is personally assigned to you. In Christ, he spilled his blood to do this. It is his zeal to come to your relief. And so I say, Expect Him. Name Him. Depend upon Him. Acknowledge that He is the only one who can do it. And yet, of course, we have to say, the final lifting can only be in that last day. We will be mixed with grief and sadness. We will have to endure to the end. We will never know a day of perfect happiness. But in that last day, we read in Revelation 21, Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In this final and complete and everlasting way, He will be the lifter of our heads. And we'll never bow them down again. And no bowed heads in heaven. And again, it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we've earned His safety or His honor or His comfort It's because He loves us and has mercy for us and suffered in our place in order to impart all of these things to us. 
in order that we could have a shield and have glory and have our heads lifted up for it. How could He love us when we are like David, when we are murderers and adulterers, we are just like Him in our selfishness and our lies? William Plummer writing in the 1800s on this psalm, reflecting on verse 2 where the wicked were saying there is no salvation for him in God. He then points to the New Testament context where this would be the tempter, the enemy, Satan himself, who's the discourager, the attacker of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren, wanting to drive you away from the mercy of God. Let the saints never believe the tempter when he says there is no help for them in God. I guarantee you he's whispered that to probably every one of you in this room. There's no help for you in God. Do you think he could stomach you right now? And I love this simple little phrase. He says, humble and obedient trust in God. Is always safe and wise. <laughs> Humble and obedient trust in God is always safe and wise. The cruelty of the enemy ultimately is to get you to sin, but then it's to get you to turn away from God in your sin. And let the consequences and the hurt and the guilt drive you off the field of faith. Don't allow it by God's grace. Take Him as your shield. Take Him as your glory. Let Him lift your head. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank You for this testimony of this man who had fallen so terribly. And in the midst of it, still cried out to his God in faith. Oh, Lord, we ourselves have fallen in ways. Some of us can say, oh, every bit as much as David. Some of us in our self-righteousness may not feel or come to grips with all that we've said and done. and Not willing yet to even face the extent of our own evil. Lord, we pray. That you would turn us from any other comfort. That you would strike deep in our hearts to convince us of our own sins. But, oh Lord, to this final end, that we will take Jesus Christ, the one who has died in the place of sinners, that we will take him and him alone as our shield, him and him alone as our glory, him and him alone as the one who can lift our head. Oh, Lord, may this mark not just a one-time event here, but, Lord, may it be the way we live every day, praying this kind of prayer, having this kind of faith, not ever being driven off by the one who would whisper to us, He doesn't want to hear from you now. He doesn't want to even look at you. Oh, Lord. Grant us continuing, abiding faith 
in Jesus Christ. For we pray it in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Shall my soul with rapture trace